Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Dr. Jim Papadrea. He is a Catholic professor, author, speaker, musician. He's baptized Catholic, but raised in a Protestant uh, denomination, eventually ordained in that Protestant denomination. And Jim's a revert to the Catholic Church through his studies of the Church Fathers. And that's going to be our discussion today. And Jim, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. It's a blessing to be with you. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so your your latest book, Reading Scripture Like the Early Church Fathers, uh, put out by Sophia Institute Press. Uh, the subtitle is Seven Insights from the Church Fathers to Help You Understand the Bible. Um, you know, great book, and I it, it is something that we talked about just before we went on, that all this personal interpretation of Scripture is leading us to the chaos we live in today. So it really is important to understand how to interpret Scripture, isn't it? It is. It's so important. And, um, you know, we, we live in a world that is uh, so so focused on um, the self and individualism and uh, making each person making him or herself their highest authority, uh, that when you apply that sort of worldview and that sort of way of thinking to reading scripture, then it very quickly becomes sort of all about me. And that that's entirely the wrong way to read scripture. And um, I think in many ways in our culture, and especially as our culture has been influenced by uh, the Protestant Reformation and Protestant uh, Christianity, I think that we have lost uh, our way in terms of how we are supposed to read scripture. And so, so this book, Reading Scripture Like the Early Church, sort of calls people back to uh, the way that the church fathers read scripture. Well, and if, and if you need any examples, right, all you have to do is look in the news or social media, what's going on with the hierarchy in Germany. Um, you just see all this craziness, what politicians do to kind of make sure that whatever their message is, they, they pull out a line of scripture to try to back it up, even though it, a lot of times it doesn't even make sense. So we just see the abuse of scripture in our everyday lives. And that's why I think you know, in your love for the early church fathers, they, they teach us so many things, not only the writings, but how to interpret uh, the scripture. And, you know, even today, I, I'm sure you run into it. People like, I, you know, I'm not really big into the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament Christian, and I don't understand mean God versus good God. They just have no idea what they're talking about. Well, that's true. And of course, you know, the, the first tactic of, uh, you know, the sort of modernism or relativism is to simply not read the scriptures at all. And which is, you know, what I think most people actually do is they think they know what the Bible says, but they don't actually read it. They think they know what Jesus taught, but they haven't read the Gospels recently enough to, uh, to actually check for themselves. And so that's, you know, that's the first thing. But then the second tactic is to take bits and pieces out of context uh, and to sort of judge between them according to one's own personal comfort. And uh, it, it is very interesting because you sort of get these two extremes. You know, you get, um, on one hand, a sort of fundamentalism um, or a, a radical um, extreme conservatism that ends up really just reading the Old Testament and kind of ignoring the new. And then you get this modernism or this extreme progressivism that ends up reading the New Testament without the old, as you mentioned, but then again, sort of not really reading it uh, in the right way, 
and making and you know when you do that you can make it say anything you want and this is exactly what the church father said if you're not careful there will be as many interpretations as there are readers um and that's just the the wrong way to read the scriptures and um you know so one of the one of the biggest insights from the early church is that you know you can't do biblical interpretation on your own in a vacuum apart from the church and her tradition well, which is kind of why the church was created for us, right? To not only guide us, to nourish us, we can receive graces through the sacraments, but to interpret Scripture because there is an authority. And if you don't have an authority, you have the chaos in which we live in today. And you, you know, you point that out, and you know, not to hop to the back of the book, but I'm going to real quick. You do a really good, and you mentioned it's a basic chart, but you do a a chart at the end of the book to kind of delineate modernists, Catholics, fundamentalists. And it, it's, it really is helpful to see that. And it does give us a clear picture of the dangers of being an extremist on either end. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I'm glad you like that chart because I'm a big chart guy and my students all know that, you know, and, and, and the truth is, you, you know, you're right. One of the first things I tell my students when I do a church history intro class on the first day of class is I always say, the history of Christianity is the history of the interpretation of God's revelation. First and foremost, in the incarnation itself, you know, the, the coming of Jesus was the primary revelation of God, but then in the scriptures. And so our, our church history is the history of the church interpreting the scriptures. And, and then the second part of that is that really all heresy is simply the attempt to interpret scripture apart from the church or apart from the tradition. Because, you know, if we have this long tradition to help us interpret scripture, why would we ignore it? Why would we not use that help? But, you know, everybody wants to reinvent the wheel and have it their own way now. Well, and I think that's the beauty of the early church fathers, right? They had their tradition, they had the Old Testament, but there was no New Testament for the first 300 years or so. So you needed tradition, you needed all those things. And so to, to throw those out and, you know, you have the, you know, the, the Protestant Reformation and all of a sudden Sola Scriptura comes up, it's, it really doesn't make sense. We're, we're creating things as we go and there's no need to because we have this history and we have the church fathers who remind us the importance of tradition and to read things in the correct manner. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, I talk about the seven insights that we get from the church fathers. And at the at the end of that, I've got an eighth sort of, you know, implied insight underlying all of it, which is this, you know, it is the church fathers who gave us our New Testament. They are the ones who decided which documents from the early church should be included in our Bible and treated as inspired and authoritative. So, you know, the, the table of contents for the Bible is not in the Bible. We have to keep reminding people this. The table of contents for the Bible was put together by the church fathers. So if they're the ones that we trust to tell us what the Bible is, why shouldn't we also trust them to show us how to interpret Scripture and how to understand it and how to apply it to our lives? Which is interesting because when you speak to a lot of Protestant pastors or you know non-denominational pastors, their training comes from the early church fathers. And it's it's interesting how they can go from that to where they are when you, what you just said really applies. It's the early church fathers who lead and guide us. And somehow 
I guess maybe because it is personal or, or we want things to be the way we want them, we kind of go astray, don't we? Well, we do. And I mean, the truth is, is that in the Protestant world, um, you know, there's there's this myth. And I was taught this growing up in the in a Protestant denomination. The myth is that, you know, somehow the Protestant Reformation was about getting back to um, an original version of Christianity, you know, before supposedly the Catholics ruined it by adding, you know, um, traditions of, of humans and superstitions and all this stuff. And when you study the early church fathers for yourself, the first thing you realize is, you know, that is a myth. There is no such thing as pre-Catholic Christianity. You know, the early church is the Catholic church. And so while the Protestants may claim to be going back to the early church, they read the church fathers very selectively. And, um, you know, so they, they want to, they want to quote Jerome uh, to for their reasons for leaving the the you know so-called deuterocanonical books out of their Old Testament, but then their their hero is Augustine, and they don't recognize that Augustine criticized Jerome for exactly doing that, and so you know they they sort of read the the church fathers selectively with these very ironic contradictions, and um, I mean don't get me started on sola scriptura because that's a whole conversation in itself, you know. Yeah, and, and you're right. But I mean, we see that, right? And then we see the strict, you know, people who do the strict interpretation of the Bible, right? They read it without really, you know, you talk about casting in the four senses of Scripture, right? They read everything and they say, you know, everything is true word for word, except for when it comes to John 6 and we're talking about the Eucharist. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you know, it, it really is about uh, knowing what kind of genre you're reading, because, you know, the Bible, in a way, is not a book. It's a collection of books. And, and you know, I love what Bishop Barron says when people say, do you read the Bible literally? And he, he turns it back and says, do you read a library literally? You know, it, the, the point being that it, there's a lot of different kinds of material in there, and you have to know what you're reading. And, um, and, and in some ways, in some very interesting ways, the, the Protestant world has pulled the same sort of trick that uh, early heretics called Gnostics pulled, which was to take the stuff that was supposed to be read, you know, metaphorically and read it literally, and then to take stuff that was supposed to be read literally and read it as if, as if it's a metaphor and, uh, and, and flip all that on its head. And so we really do need to um, consult the church fathers to follow their lead on, on how to read scripture. Well, and they teach us that, right? They, you know, there's, you know, there's the historical you mentioned, the theological, moral, eschatological, you know, in terms of the four senses, but there's different ways to read it and they show us how to do it. And for us to kind of take it on our own, uh, and do this personal interpretation, we almost always morph it so it fits our lifestyle instead of us changing our lifestyle to fit what Jesus really wants. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, when you look at it, the, the beautiful thing is, you know, a person can read the Bible for themselves. You know, we're not saying, oh, don't read the Bible. You should read the Bible for yourself. And the, and the great news is you don't need to know all the fancy theological words. You don't need to understand a lot of doctrine. You'll get the doctrine eventually. But um, but, you know, when we look at how the Church Fathers interpreted Scripture, it's actually pretty simple as long as you can see what they were doing. But the thing you can't do is do it on your own um, as though it's really all about you. And even St. Peter says, you know, no interpretation of Scripture is a matter of one's own opinion. Uh, and so 
you know, we have to do it in the context of the church. And you have a good line in there. You talk about, uh, you mentioned that doctrine develops, it doesn't evolve. And maybe you can talk about that a little bit, because I think that's a really important concept. Well, yeah, it is an important concept. I wish I could claim credit for sort of inventing this way of of thinking about it, but, um, you know, it it comes from the Church Fathers, and it was clarified by uh, St. John Henry Newman in his uh, essay on the development of doctrine. And so the the idea is, is that, you know, let's say the doctrine of the Trinity, right? The word Trinity is not in the Bible. So if you're following a strict sola scriptura kind of approach, you're going to say, oh, well, Trinity is not in the Bible. The problem is, you know, that's not true. The doctrine of the Trinity absolutely is in the Bible, but it has to be clarified by the interpretations of the Church Fathers and the early Church. And so when we say doctrine develops, we say that, uh, you know, our Orthodox doctrines are our tradition, and they were there from the beginning, but over time they are clarified more and more, right? On the other hand, though, they don't evolve because doctrine doesn't become something it wasn't over time. So something that was orthodox in the second century is not going to all of a sudden be heresy in the third century or vice versa. Um, and, and the way I teach my students about this is I say that, you know, there is an orthodoxy in every century, in every generation of the church's life. And in each generation, the orthodoxy of that generation is built on the foundation of the orthodoxy of the generations that came before. So doctrine develops in the sense that it is expansive and it becomes clarified over time, but it does not evolve because it doesn't change. It, it, it doesn't become something it wasn't. And so I think, you know, a lot of the problems that we have today are, um, you know, people mistaking uh, development for evolution and people who are trying to say that the church should evolve rather than develop. Um, you know, we're not proposing a static church, but we're also not proposing a church that, you know, becomes something it was never meant to be. Well, I think that's one of the dangers of the synod on synodality that's going on and what's sometimes coming out of the Vatican, right? It it, it almost makes it sound like they they are subscribing to the evolution, right? And not the development because they're 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 leading us on a path, not everybody, but we're we're seeing it in the German church in different places. It, it, it is leading us to an evolution of something Scripture never said and the early ch- church fathers never embraced on this, this heresy, whether it comes to marriage or different things, right? We're, we're, we're evolving it to fit this modernist view that we're in this world we're living in. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of that comes down to uh, our understanding of what authority is and what the church is in terms of, you know, we say, we call that ecclesiology, our, our theology of the church. And, um, and you are right in the sense that, you know, there are people in the church today who want to revisit the question of whether a council could have the highest authority in the church. And, and, and that is a question that was asked in, uh, in the Middle Ages, and it was answered. The answer is no. Uh, a council does not have the highest authority in the church. Uh, we, we have a highest authority, that is the Holy Father, in, in consultation with his advisors, but, um, but a council cannot, for example, you know, override the Pope. A council cannot change the nature of the church. A council cannot turn orthodoxy into heresy and vice versa. 
Um, and, and so we, we, again, you know, we have to, we have to walk that fine line to be, to be open, you know, and not afraid to talk about things, but also to have boundaries around what the church is and what orthodoxy is. And, you know, you have a chapter that you talk about, you know, love being the key and, you know, how St. Augustine kind of explains this. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit, because I think that was that was really, an, I mean, the book is very good. That was an important chapter, I think, that people need to, you can't forget. Yeah, I mean, you know, the bottom line uh, of this sort of uh, what we call the hermeneutic of love, you know, like love as the key to interpretation is is that Augustine says, look, he says, you know, we're going to be wrong some of the times. We we can't always know the truth, but here's how you know if you're wrong. If your interpretation of Scripture leads you to do anything other than love God and love your neighbor, then there's something wrong. Like, a, a good interpretation of Scripture will always lead you to, to, you know, the double commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Having said that, though, that doesn't become permission to define love in any way one wants, and then because you know that the the danger there is if uh, if we define uh, love in terms of sort of a very broad sense of compassion for everybody, and we let it lead us to a um, you know a kind of uh, you know liberty that that gives everyone permission to do whatever they want because we feel like that's the nicest thing we can do. Well, we're not doing them any favors either, so we have to be careful. Well, and it becomes all about us at that point, right? We want people to like us. We don't we don't want people to be mad. And we live in a world, you know, everybody wears their emotions on their sleeves. But, you know, if you look at the early church fathers, they died for truth, many of them. And so when we yeah. walk down, we really, we really spit upon what they did for us because of our cowardice. Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. Amen to that. And um, And I think if, you know, uh, on my more cynical days, I think a lot of it boils down to uh, there is a kind of extreme progressivism that at the end of the day ultimately just wants to give everybody permission to do anything so that so that I have permission to do whatever I want. Like the more I the more I give everyone else permission, the more permission that gives me to do whatever I want. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think that is actually driving a lot of uh a lot of the problems we have in our culture right now. Well, and like we, you know, we like to think, you know, everybody's going to heaven, right? It doesn't matter in the end, Jesus will just forgive you. Uh, you know, you even have theologians like von Balthasar and different ones who, who like to, who push that theory. But again, that's not how the fathers interpreted the scripture, right? Jesus talks many times about heaven and hell and yeah. you know, go sin no more. It's not about do whatever you want. And in the end, everything will be okay. This is really a way to kind of model and conform our lives so that we can reach the beatific vision, which should be everybody's goal. Well, that's right. And I mean, you know, people talk about universalism again, as though it's the most compassionate way to think about God. Well, you know, the the God I believe in wouldn't, you know, fill in the blank, or, you know, I, I don't want to worship a God who would fill in the blank. And of course, that's just defining God according to your own terms. Um, but I think that, you know, people at the end of the day want to be universalists. They want to believe that everybody's going to heaven because that's the most comfortable 
thing to believe. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. I would love to be a universalist. I wish I could. The reason I can't is because Jesus wasn't one, right? I mean, read the Gospels. This is, this is what I was talking about earlier, where people think they know what Jesus taught, but if they actually read the Gospels, they might be shocked to see what Jesus actually taught. And one of the things Jesus actually taught is some people are going to hell. And um, so that's something everybody needs to think about, you know, while they live. And uh, and so you're right. I mean, the church fathers saw that very clearly. Anyone would see that very clearly just by reading the Gospels. Jesus did not teach universalism. He did not teach that everyone's going to heaven. Well, and I think, you know, the important part, and I, and I appreciate your real focus on the church fathers, because what they've done for us is is incredible and they were real people right we sometimes we think of them you know well they didn't make any mistakes they just had they had a i mean early christianity was a bloodbath and these guys defended truth they shared the truth to again to some of their mark some of them were martyrs but it was so that we could have this gift of a foundation and and an example on how to read scripture and how to live our lives yeah, that's right. And I mean, the other thing to remember about the church fathers is they were, um, most of them pastors, they were in it. They were in the church. These are not, you know, professors sitting up in an office in their ivory tower, you know, uh, just writing books and never having contact with their audience. These were uh, pastors, uh, many of them bishops, but the bishops were not, that's, that was not just an administrative office. They were also pastors of congregations. They were priests. They were uh, some of them were lay people. They were catechists, um, and so everything they wrote was was you know came out of their direct contact with the people who needed to hear this stuff. And so um, you know we can we can identify with their audience in that way. Well, and uh, not to be cynical, but I will be. Um, I think a lot of our hierarchy and bishops today should take an example and, and model their uh, ministry after the early church fathers, because we have way too many who are passive and just let things kind of go by. And it, it really is discouraging for the faithful. But again, the faithful can't use that as an excuse, because as you bring up and as you, in your, you know, your books that you've put out, the early church fathers are something that are accessible to everyone, and we get a chance to read and and model our lives after really courageous people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, most of the documents, uh, all of the ones that I talk about in the book, and most of the church, the early church documents are available in English translations. Some of the English translations are a little old and archaic, but they're all online, so you don't even need to pay any money to to access them. You can read them on your computer and you can see, and it, they, they are surprisingly accessible. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't have to have a theology degree to read the Church Fathers, and you certainly don't have to have a theology degree to read the Scriptures the way the Church Fathers did. Um, and that's sort of the point of the book, I guess. Yeah, and, it, and even at the end, in terms of interpretation and, and getting quality material, you talk about how to choose a good Bible. Bible, we're down to the last couple minutes, but maybe you can just, you know, briefly explain the importance of choosing a good Bible and 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 how it's been uh, written. Yeah, well, you know, people have to remember that uh, you know the Bible was not written in English, right? Um, it, you know, Jesus 
was probably speaking Aramaic, which would be like a you know street version of Hebrew. Um, and, uh, and so that even his own words and all of the stuff that happened, that all had to be translated into Greek first. And then the new Testament was written in Greek. The old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew, but some Greek. And so we have these documents all written in Hebrew and Greek that then have to be translated into English. Sometimes they get translated into Latin first, but either way, when you open your English Bible, that's a translation. And some translations are better than others. And so, um, you know, I talk about in the book how to choose a good English translation, a good English Bible, uh, which ones to stay away from. And I talk about the reasons why. And um, and so, yeah, that's an important issue because a bad translation will be done by people who are, you know, making interpretive decisions for the reader and inserting their own theology. And sometimes that's uh, that's not good. Well, and let's be honest, right? That's why the Protestant Bible has books missing, because it really didn't fit with Luther's theology. So you have to get rid of the things that uh, counter against that. And and that's the point of being open to Scripture. And, and as you talk about in this book, and you, and you bring out, it's very prominent, right? There are two authors, right? There's the human author, and there's the divine author. And it, it is a, a both and, not either or. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Just just like the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, is both divine and human, the written Word of God is also uh, divine and human in the sense that it's uh, inspired by God, but written by people. And so on the one hand, it's, it's authoritative and it's uh, infallible. You can, you can trust it. It's trustworthy. But on the other hand, it comes out of a human context, and you have to know how to read it in order to know how to apply it to your life. So we're down to about the last minute or so. How can people follow what you're doing and uh, get your and find where your books and get those books? So especially, you know, spend that focus on the early church fathers. Yeah, well, um, all my books are are on Amazon. My Amazon author page is at uh, drjimsbooks.com. So if people go to drjimsbooks.com, that'll jump right to my Amazon author page. Or to follow me, um, the best place to start is YouTube. I'm on YouTube. Uh, the handle is the Original Church. And so I do videos and other things um, under the, the umbrella of what I call the original church. And uh, if people look for me on YouTube, you can find a lot of videos and stuff there. Well, highly recommend the books. Uh, and this is just one of, you know, it's, I think the last two have been really focused on the early church fathers and then their interpretation of Scripture. I would recommend both very highly. Jim, thanks for joining us today and keep up the good work. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.